Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, the peace that you've given and made ours in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we thank you that in your grace you have given us every single blessing in the heavenly places. You've saved us, you've made us your own, you've called us together to your church, made us your bride, your people, your covenant community. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's infallible, inerrant, and true, that it has in it everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, we pray now as we come to hear your word preached and and read aloud to us, Lord, would you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you make us able and willing to receive the Word of God as it is preached? Help us to remember it and retain it as we leave this place. Help us to obey it and help us to share it with those around us. We pray it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Carly and I could not be more thankful to get a Sunday where we get to come back and be with you, brothers and sisters. I know it's only been a couple months. It's felt like a couple of years. Uh, and so we are, we're thankful to get to be back here with y'all, worship with y'all, get to bring uh, the word to each of you. Um, when Rusty called me the other night, I told him I think it was the Lord's uh, providence. We have every Sunday been in different churches trying to secure funds for the church plant, and it just so happened that this Sunday we had a, a free opening, and I think that's definitely uh, the grace of God for us. Um, We're thankful to get to be back with y'all, to get to spend time with y'all, to get to fellowship with you. This Sunday evening at our church plant in Florence, I was beginning the book of Philippians. We had been, spent the last six weeks kind of going here, there, and everywhere across God's Word, getting some basic core principles set down, but uh, this Sunday had been set in stone since August 1st to start Philippians, and so they're getting verses 1 and 2 this evening, and so also y'all will get verses uh, 1 and 2 this morning. And so the book of Philippians is what we're in, it's what we're starting. In these first two verses, I think we have a temptation as a people when we read God's Word to skim past sections like this. These are just the introductory matters, as it were. He's just giving greetings. What what could there be for us to glean from verses like this in God's Word? Well, as it happens, there is a lot that we can glean from even verses such as this. I want to give us a little bit of context to help us be situated uh, of what's going on at the church in Philippi, why Paul has, has written this letter. Well, Philippi was an interesting city. It was a unique city among the Roman Empire's towns. It was in eastern Macedonia, and 400 years prior to Paul's writing this letter, to Paul's coming to the church, it had been conquered by none other than the father of Alexander the Great, King Philip II of Macedonia. That's where we get the name Philippi. It was conquered by King Philip. And only a century before Paul steps foot in this city, 
uh, and meets Lydia and meets the jailer and, and frees the, the demon-possessed girl and all that we read about in Acts 16, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with who that is, along with the famous general Mark Antony, they fought a heavy battle right outside the city's gates. And upon victory to celebrate granted all the residents of this city full Roman benefits and privileges that come with being a citizen of Rome. Now, Rome had a vast empire, but not every city that was within its boundaries got these types of perks and benefits. But if you're a Philippian, you had the full rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. Many saw Philippi as a little Rome. A little Rome. It was the second capital, almost, some would say, of the Roman Empire. So much so that most of the great veterans of the Roman military, when they retired, they lived out their days of retirement here in the city of Philippi. And we find Paul getting introduced to this city to, to really get grounded. You have to flip back to Acts. All the way back in Acts 16, we find Paul joined by Timothy and Silas and Luke making their way into the city of Philippi. Roughly in AD 51, while making multiple attempts to go and bring the gospel to Asia, uh, we read in Acts 16 this interesting phrase that they were prevented by God. Now, now what does that look like? I'm not sure. Uh, did, did God uh, maybe bring Roman officials to stop them? Did they face sickness? Did they run out of supplies? Was there a storm? We're, we're not really sure. All we know is that Paul had it set in his heart to go and bring the gospel and plant churches in Asia, but God prevented them at every turn. And so after one of those attempts, they made their way to the little coastal city of Troas, which is right across the little sea strait from what is Philippi. And it was there that we read in Acts 16.9 that a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there urging Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, the text tells us, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that surely God had called them to preach the gospel to them. And I think that's a fair conclusion. Paul typically, upon arriving in a city, any city of the Roman Empire where he went and preached the gospel, Paul's game plan every time, the first thing he did was he went and found the local synagogue. And this really just makes good practical sense. If he's going to come into a city and bring the gospel, he's going to first bring it to people that at least have some type of bearing or understanding about this religion, about the God of the Bible. But we find in Acts 16, 11 through 15, uh, that Paul found no synagogue. That instead they went, quote, to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. Uh, what we can conclude from this is that there were so few Jews in the city of Philippi that they couldn't constitute a synagogue. It required ten Jewish males to have a synagogue and apparently there wasn't even that many. And so this is a town steeped in Roman religion, steeped in Roman patriotism, uh, likely worshipping the gods of Rome along with the emperor of Rome. They have Almost no bearing, it seems, for monotheism or anything that would help Paul build building blocks to the gospel of Jesus. But there in God's providence, we read in Acts 16 that they found women who had gathered for prayer. And among them was a woman named Lydia. And God opened her heart to the gospel. And in return, Lydia, upon her profession of faith and the baptism of her family, opens up her spacious, wealthy home 
to become what would be Paul's first established church in what we would call Europe. Lydia's house becomes the first gathering place of the church of Jesus Christ in Europe. Later in Acts 16, 16 through 18, we find Paul, while walking through the city, he encounters a demon-possessed girl. And her masters are taking advantage of her gift and her blessing by using her to tell people's fortunes and receiving money in return. Well, Paul, upon seeing this, exercises the demon from the girl in front of everyone. And the owners, instead of being happy, instead of being thankful, are now quite upset. Their source of money, their source of income has just been stripped from them. And so they get together a mob. You can picture the pitchforks and the torches. And they come and they they seize Paul and Silas and throw them in prison. And in the middle of the night, while Paul and Silas were praying and, and singing hymns aloud, you can tell they were really deterred from their gospel work. A great earthquake comes and opens up all the prison doors. And the prison guard, likely upon fearing that his own life would be taken when his superiors find out that he has somehow managed to allow every single one of the prisoners to escape, he grabs his sword ready to take his own life. But Paul stopped him. And the jailer fell prostrate before Paul, pleading, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There the guard and his family were baptized upon his conversion. And having been asked by the authorities to leave, Paul left the city, but left Luke, young Luke, in charge of the congregation and departed and went on his own way to Thessalonica. It was at least a year to two years before Paul would revisit Philippi, and we don't know how many other visits, if at all, he got to come. But what we do know from what we find here in the text and in Acts, that Philippi held a a special place of love and warmth in the apostle's heart. Paul continued throughout his ministry to receive overwhelmingly large financial support from the church at Philippi. Had a loving relationship with the Philippian believers. Had a connection there through Timothy and through Luke. The epistle of Philippians is filled with terms of what we might call endearment and expressions for a longing reunion with his family in Christ there. In Philippians 1, 7-8 he writes saying, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4.1, he says to them, My brothers whom I love and long for, and calls them my joy and my crown. But this isn't, this shouldn't lead us to think that the church at Philippi was without problems. They might not have been bad, as bad off as Corinth, but they definitely had their issues. Paul, throughout this letter, addresses their self-centeredness, their subtle self-centeredness and pride and rivalries that apparently had begun in the church. Their unity seems to be at jeopardy. And there also seems to be a combined threat, both physically of suffering, we find in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, paired with the spiritual threats of, on the one hand, Judaizing legalism, and on the other, antinomian sensuality. All that to say, they have been faced with a plethora of issues. They are a church struggling. They are a church suffering. And their planter and apostle is rotting away in a Roman cell. And their favorite minister is away with him. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, simply put, because his chains prevented him from coming to them in person. Somehow, we don't really know how, but somehow within a few months of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, over a decade after his first visit where he planted the church, 
Years after his visits to Philippi, the church had become aware of Paul's imprisonment and suffering. And we find in Philippians 4.18 that despite great worry over their own physical needs and support, they determined to send a large monetary gift to Paul to aid him in prison. They sent out a man named Epaphroditus to bring Paul the gift, but also you know, they gave Paul something, but they were asking something in return. As Epaphroditus brings Paul this gift, they also ask in return that he would send them Timothy, which seems like a fair request. Their, their church is hurting their church is struggling, their church is suffering, facing persecution from all these different facets and venues. They want Timothy back. Send us Timothy. He'll, he'll bring order. He'll bring structure. He'll, he'll, he'll get rid of the heretics. He'll bring unity once more. But Paul says no. Paul says no. He was appreciative for the continual support. And he was concerned for the problems at the church in Philippi. He knew that they required immediate attention. But he could not send Timothy. You see, Timothy had been his main source of support and encouragement. Really his only friend for the years that he had been in prison. And so he sends a letter in young Timothy's place. That letter is Philippians. When it comes to the source and the content of this letter, everyone always focuses on joy when it comes to Philippians. And joy is certainly prominent. It's certainly present throughout the letter. But Paul uses words like think and consider and know two to three times more than he uses the word joy. Now, this letter's focus more than joy is unity, humility, and maturity. He desires their joy, but he desires it through their growth. And today we'll see in these two little verses God's word and encouragement for us, brothers and sisters, as the Apostle Paul was, to be consumed with Christ. It's only by being consumed with Christ that you and I will have true and lasting joy that will grow our unity, will grow our humility, will grow our maturity despite our sufferings and circumstances. It's in Paul's opening words here that we are to be consumed with Christ as those who are slaves of Christ, saints in Christ, and as those who receive our sustenance from Christ. We are slaves of Christ first, saints of Christ second, and third, we are those who receive our sustenance from Christ. One, I think, might be tempted to just skim past verses such as this. Again, we might not write many letters today, but we send texts and emails. And how often when you receive an email do you spend a great deal of time focusing on the opening greetings? Probably not. At first glance, it looks like just a standard letter opening. The apostle, however, makes three small yet significant changes to the typical opening of a first century letter. The first thing he changes is that he lists Timothy's name alongside his own and shares a title with him. There are few other letters where Paul lists another person at all in the opening. In 2 Corinthians, we read, for example, of Paul the Apostle, and we do find him listing Timothy. But he gives Timothy a different title. He is Paul the Apostle, but Timothy is the brother. We find that in a few different places. Paul, in a few places, will list himself with another, but he never shares a title. But only in Philippians does Paul begin a letter listing a colleague and also sharing a title together with him. And what's the title Paul chooses to share? Slaves of Christ Jesus. 
slaves of Christ Jesus. We also see another change here. Paul, who typically takes a great deal of time in these epistles, in these churches, defending his apostolic authority. At a bare minimum, Paul almost always introduces himself as Paul the Apostle. His apostleship had always been contested, so he always took a great deal of care to make clear, I am an apostle. But he admits that here. And instead chooses a more favored title, Slave of Christ. This is only found in two other epistles in the New Testament, Romans and Titus. Paul has chosen here in Philippians to prioritize not his privileged position, brothers and sisters, but rather his lowly servitude to Christ along with Timothy. And here we see, church, the truth for every Christian. The truth for every Christian, even the highest of apostles, that those whom Christ saves, he also enslaves. Those whom Christ saves, he also enslaves. These changes that Paul has made to the letter opening, they're not random. They're intentional. Paul, from the start of his epistle, is modeling the self-sacrificial, humble slavery as opposed to self-centered pride. Here at the very beginning of his letter, Paul is modeling for the Philippian church the themes that he will repeatedly return to throughout the letter of unity and humility. Reality, sweet church, is that everyone... Everyone, brother and sister, is a slave. Every human being on this planet is in servitude to someone or something. No matter how much you and I would like to think otherwise or try to convince ourselves otherwise, you do serve a master. Whether it be success or money or reputation or respect, it matters not who the master is. If Christ has saved you, if He has redeemed you, Yes, He has set you free from sin, but He has purchased you and you are now His slave. The Christian is not autonomous to do as you will or please. No one is. There are no masterless men on this earth. All are either ultimately slaves to Christ or slaves to sin. So which choice will you have? Which decision will you make? Will you be a slave to Christ or will you be a slave to sin? It seems like an easy enough decision. Yet we find often, if not the majority of time, which people choose. The former master is cruel. It gives its slaves the illusion of freedom, but the whole time it disables them from doing any good. Our former master sin deprives us of any moral good, we read in Romans 8.15. It makes us worthless fellows, we read in Romans 3. It gives us only filthy rags with which to clothe ourselves. And at the end of the day, for all our hard work and strivings and troubles, it only rewards us in one prize, and that is death. But the latter is a gracious Lord. Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, He enables us to be loving and peaceable and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. He clothes us not in rags, but in His own beautiful, blameless righteousness. And at the end of it all, rewards you despite your failures, despite your shortcomings, despite your struggles repeatedly. He rewards you at the end of all of it with eternity alongside Him reigning and ruling and serving Brothers and sisters, everyone is a slave. But only the slave of Christ is truly free. 
The church father Chrysostom wrote this, that one who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave in any other realm of life. Brothers and sisters, Paul is inviting the church at Philippi and inviting you and me to experience the freedom which comes only from bowing the knee to King Jesus. And he's leading by example. Paul is writing this encouragement not while walking around free enjoying privileges. Paul is writing this while enchained in custody, rotting away in a Roman jail cell awaiting trial before Caesar. But it seems to matter not to Paul that he has on earthly chains because he has been set free in the only sense that matters. Paul, the apostle, is so consumed with Christ that he's not thinking about his jail cell. He's not thinking about his poverty. He's not thinking about his afflictions and sufferings and troubles. He is willing and ready Eager to be made low if it means seeing his Lord Jesus Christ exalted. Paul and Timothy here are so consumed with Christ that they are more concerned, they are more concerned with Christ's glory and the good of their fellow Christians in the church than they are with their own comfort and safety. Brothers and sisters, consider with me what this would do for the church what this would do for the unity of our church if we were to think more consistently like Paul and Timothy here. Imagine how differently the interactions day to day and week to week among the body would look. Imagine as Presbyterians how different the interactions and debates on the floor of our Presbyteries and General Assemblies would look. If like Paul we were to think more consistently Humbly seeing ourselves and interacting, interacting with others, not putting our privileges and our positions first, but thinking firstly and chiefly as slaves and servants of Christ. As Paul will write later in chapter 2, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but the interest of others. Or as he writes in 2.14, doing all things without grumbling or dispute. Or as he writes in chapter 4, verse 11, learning in whatever situation, in whatever situation you find yourselves in, that we are to be content. The third alteration that Paul makes to the standard letter opening here is that he addresses not only the church, but this is the only letter in the New Testament where he addresses the church along with its officers. He writes the letter to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. Overseers is a word that's translated from the Greek word episkopos. It can be literally translated to mean bishop. But it's used in the New Testament interchangeably, pointing and, and showing us that it's the same person as elder. Elder, bishop, overseer, these are all just different descriptors of the same office, of the same person. And look at passages such as Acts 20, Titus 1, in 1 Peter 5. Elder refers to the seniority of a leader in the church. Not necessarily in age, though it oftentimes is, but rather in spiritual wisdom. And a bishop describes the ministry that the elder exercises. He literally oversees the affairs and ministry of the church. And deacon literally means servant. Actually, if we get specific, 
the word very literally means to serve a table. And it's an office of sympathy and service in the church. So why did Paul choose here but none of his other letters to address the officers specifically of the church? Well, I believe he does so as a twofold reminder. First, as a reminder to the members of the church, to the laity, to the congregants. Paul is here reminding those at the church in Philippi, those who would insist on their own ways and their own preferences and their own interests. He's reminding them that Jesus has given them officers with authority who will hold them accountable. Brothers and sisters, you have elders, overseers, who Christ has placed in this church to care for your well-being and to correct you when you err. And you have deacons to both help you in your time in need and to stand as a model of servanthood for Christ Jesus. Clearly, the Apostle Paul, we find here, expected Christians to not just be recognized by their profession of faith, but by their membership in a local church submitting to their overseers. We could ask ourselves simply this question, where are the saints here in the introduction? They're in the church. Where are the saints? Where are the Christians here at Philippi? They're in a church, united to a church, members of a church with their overseers and deacons. And secondly, Paul reminds the officers of the church that they, like Paul and like Timothy, are first and foremost slaves and servants of Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry wrote that the highest honor even of the greatest apostle and most eminent minister is to be the servant of Christ. Brothers and sisters, leaders in the kingdom of Christ are servants, not CEOs. It doesn't matter your background, your pedigree, or your degrees, or your experience. We are first and foremost slaves and servants of Christ. We see here then in our first point that being consumed with Christ, we are slaves of Christ. And that whether officer or lady in the church, that we should be selflessly, humbly serving our King and our brothers and sisters for His sake. But not only were we slaves of Christ, but also we see in our second point, we are saints in Christ. We are saints in Christ. What does it mean to be a saint? The Greek word used here, hagios, literally means the holy ones. Paul is writing to the holy ones in Philippi. It's an idea that you brothers and sisters, that you have been by God's grace in Christ alone made sacred, pure. He has consecrated you, set you apart from common use to a sacred use. He has made you holy. It's the same word throughout the New Testament used of the Holy Spirit. It's the word used of Jesus Himself as the Holy One of God. It's the same word, if you were to read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word used of God Himself in Isaiah 6, where we read that God is holy, holy, holy. Literally there in the Septuagint, hagios, hagios, hagios. And so consider that Paul uses the same word to speak of you. Paul addresses you, addresses believers with the same word the Scriptures used to describe every person of the Trinity. Holy. You are the holy ones, saints. And this isn't the way most use it in our culture. This isn't the Roman Catholic understanding of sainthood, that if you work enough, strive enough, if you're good enough, 
If you're part of that special elite top tier unit of Christendom, then maybe if you're pious enough after your death, you might be titled with sainthood. That's not what this is. It's not at all what the word means or indicates biblically. Even here in our text, Paul refers to all the saints. The apostle here refers to every single believer in Christ Jesus, every single believer in Philippi as a holy one, set apart, consecrated unto God, regardless of their background or history. Lydia, the God-fearer, a Gentile woman, he calls a saint, a Gentile. In the Jews' mind, if there were ever a group of people that were commonplace, non-consecrated, dirty in the Levitical sense. It was Gentiles. If you picture the, the, the Jewish holy temple, there was a series of walls. Gentiles couldn't come closer in than the furthest most courtyard. Maybe if you were lucky enough to be a Jewish woman, you could come in one more step. But only Jewish men could come in again, and then you had a couple of other divisions where only the priests could come. And yet here, Paul refers to a Gentile woman as a saint. Consider the jailer, whom I guarantee you no one would have thought before that earthquake would have thought of him as a saint. Here he calls a saint. So we need to be clear, church, that for unbelievers, we need to be clear as we proclaim the gospel to the lost around us, that there are no amount of works or deeds that you can do to achieve this title. God has commanded us to be holy even as He is holy, and that's pretty holy. You're not going to get there on your own. I'm not going to get there on my own. Yet Isaiah says of the unregenerate man that our sins have made a chasm between us and God. We are separated as sinful creatures from our holy and blameless Creator. No amount of works of deeds or, or, or desires or intentions, none of it is going to matter at the end of the day. None of them will elevate us to the point that we would need to get to enter sainthood. It is only by God's Holy Spirit entering you that you become a saint. This is why Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus. It is only in Christ, brother and sister, that you can be made holy. If you are in Christ... Regardless of your background, where you come from, what sins you've done, if you are in Christ united to Him, you now have His obedience, His sacrifice, His resurrection, His victory over sin and death, His holiness. All of it becomes yours. If you are in Christ, you are a saint, objectively, unchangeably. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus if He has saved you, filled you with His Holy Spirit, you are a saint. You have been consecrated. God has set you apart from a common use to a sacred use. You are now pure and holy. You have been set apart by the free sovereign grace of God for the mission of God. And this should be an encouragement to those of you who find yourselves struggling struggling with self-image or struggling with the fear that you're simply one mistake away from your Heavenly Father abandoning you. Struggling with thoughts of how could a God as holy as He love someone as sinful as me? Brothers and sisters, if this is you, if you feel shame and guilt because of the thoughts of your sins, take heart. You are holy. Though you stumble, though you fall, though you sin daily, 
if He has united you to Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are holy, objectively, unchangeably. You are a saint. But with this encouragement also comes a challenge. You are a saint, so live like it. You are a saint, so think like it. You are a saint, so speak like it, act like it. Go about living your life, doing the things you do, making the decisions you make as a saint. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you should walk in them. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. Love that which He loves. Hate that which He hates. Be about His mission and His glory and His kingdom. Live, think, feel, act in Christ. It is only in Christ that you are saints. So also, the opposite is true, as Matthew Henry wrote, that out of Christ the best saints will appear sinners. So lean not on your own strength or abilities or knowledge, but on Christ. Church, the more that you are in Christ, in His Word, in prayer, worshiping with His body in church Sunday after Sunday, the more you are in Christ, the more you will live a life in accordance with your saintly status. Paul writes to those who are in Christ, but also to those who are at Philippi. And here I think Paul offers a subtle acknowledgement of the fact that the Christian simultaneously lives in two places, two states, in Christ and here on earth, wherever He has providentially placed you. Brothers and sisters, we are in Christ, but we are also here, in this time, in this place. Yet we are to be saints nonetheless. As saints, we should be different than those not in Christ. Living as aliens, looking, thinking, acting, speaking differently than those around us at Philippi. The fact that we are in Christ should be more obvious to others than the fact that we are at Philippi or America or Mississippi or Pike County or wherever we find ourselves. We are to be consumed with Christ as those who are His slaves, as those who are His saints, but lastly and thirdly, also as those who receive our sustenance from Christ. We receive our sustenance from Christ. Here again we see Paul make a subtle but substantial change to the standard first century letter opening. Typically, after one would identify their author and their audience, the writer followed it with the Greek word chirene, which simply meant greetings. Hello. It's just a simple, straightforward, standard greeting. But Paul replaces chirene with a Greek word that sounds and looks very similar. Charis. He changes it from greetings to grace. It's subtle, but it's substantial. Brothers and sisters, what is the source of our relationship with Christ? What is the source of your sainthood? What is the source of your servitude? What is, what is it that sustains and fuels and enables the believer to be, as Paul will say later, content in all circumstances? Even when you find yourself in a jail cell like Paul. Even when you're facing persecution or loss. It is the grace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Church, it is not your merits, but His mercy. It is not your gifting, but His grace. It is by grace alone that you were saved. It is grace which alone is the source of our sainthood and service of our union with Christ. And the result of that we find here is peace. Reconciliation with our holy Creator, Father God. You, Christian, have received from Christ peace, spiritual welfare, security, safety, tranquility, a peace which we read of elsewhere which surpasses understanding. This is the the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. This isn't something which passes and fluctuates from day to day or situation to circumstance. You have objectively, just like your sainthood in Christ, been given peace. You who were at war with God, with others, and within yourself have now been given peace from Christ. The source of our well-being, the source of our blessing is Christ. There is no peace without grace. There is no grace where there is no peace with God, and there is no grace and peace from God, but in and through Jesus Christ. Christ and Christ alone is our peacemaker. And peacemaking always has a price. Peacemaking always has a price. It was common throughout history for clans and family households who had been at war to secure peace by the head of a clan offering one of his children to those he was at war with. Either a young boy to become the ward and servant of the other clan or a daughter to give as a hand in marriage. To secure our peace, brothers and sisters, God the Father sent His Son who gave His life as a ransom for many. Humanity, all the sons and daughters of Adam had been in enmity with God since the garden. And we would have remained that way had the Father not given His Son. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, and Him alone. The grace and peace. This grace and peace impart to us not only forgiveness and mercy and salvation. I mean, praise be to God for those blessings. But this grace and peace imparts to us not only forgiveness, but transformation. He bids us to come as we are, but praise be to God that He does not leave you that way. His grace and peace, it breaks down our pride, our self-centeredness, our self-focus, and fosters in us a growing sense of humility and love as we are now consumed not with our own interests, not with our own reputations, not with our own wants and desires, but with Christ and His glory and His kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we are to be consumed with Christ as those who are His slaves, as those who are His servants, as those who are His saints, and as those who have received our sustenance in Christ alone. It is in Christ, by Christ, with Christ, of Christ, that we are His slaves, that we are His saints, and that we have received our sustenance. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Lord, We thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for this church here in Summit, Mississippi. Lord, would You bless us? Would You make Your face to shine upon us? 
Would you enable us to remember your word as it has been preached to us, that we might obey it, that we might love it, that we might treasure it, that we might share it with another. Lord, remind us constantly to count others ahead of ourselves, to consider others before ourselves. Help us to grow in humility, in unity, and maturity in Christ and Christ alone. We pray it in His name and for His kingdom and glory. Amen.